Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Hi, everyone. Hope you guys are not in too much of a sugar coma from Halloween. And hopefully you guys had a great weekend with family and your kiddos were able to have a safe and um, calm Halloween if you needed a little sensory break, if your kids needed that or yeah. Yeah, it's a whirlwind, right? With <laughs> with Halloween and especially it being on a Monday. I hope all the teachers are hanging in there and those sugar crashes are, are definitely real. Although I know that a lot of schools started implementing the Tuesday, the day after Halloween off. What? Yeah, I know Logan's school has today off and I've heard that a lot of schools are starting to do that. Like, I think they've realized that that sugar crash after Halloween is just not a great thing to put on teachers. So <laughs> yeah, but then a parent has to take the day off like because the school is, the school I, is closed. I, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's what we like, which is weird because like you go to school on Monday and then you have Tuesday off. I think they're using it as like staff development days. Okay. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe some schools had both Monday and Tuesday. So it was a, a long weekend. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like that could be more manageable because then if a parent wanted to do something, they could change it into, you know, like a vacation more, right? Yeah. A different option to get your kid to do. I I remember there was like a couple parents when I was growing up, they would like take their kid to a movie or they'd like buy them a toy, like just to get them to not go trick or treating. So it's interesting to kind of see the different things that people do, Mm. Um, but to each their own. I just, I kind of want to get started because we have a really exciting guest. I'm just so happy and honored to have Jana and Champagne on our podcast. Hello. Welcome. Hi, Vicki. How are you? I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. I, you know, a client of mine actually talked to me about you and a couple other people for a presentation that a virtual presentation that um, a nonprofit that I'm on the board on had recently done. And I just, in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, like, let's just see her availability. And I was like, we have to have her on. So Jenna, you wear a lot of hats. You were just telling us that. Can you kind of give a brief introduction of yourself to our listeners? And then we can kind of get into it. Yes, of course. And so first and foremost, I'm a special needs parent. Uh, I have a daughter with autism who's 20 years of age. And, you know, it's been a a journey and a progression with her, as I'm sure other parents can can attest. And Mm -hmm. she's one of these that has, you know, started off on the really severe end of the spectrum. She didn't speak until age 10. There was a lot of misinterpretation by the school districts about her academic abilities. Ah. We began homeschooling about a decade ago, and last year she graduated high school with a diploma. So right. she's one of these kids that, that has made a lot of progress, still has a lot of needs, right. you know, especially executive function and things like that. So that's her story. And then, you know, my story, you know, concurrent with hers is that I became a nurse when she was young, uh, worked in the nursing world for a long time. So big on autism biomed and what we can do to help target the underlying physical imbalances that are often found right. with autism that are oftentimes ignored by mainstream medicine. That sort of led into an interesting journey with cannabis therapy. 
uh, which benefited both myself when I had a major health collapse in 2012 mm -hmm. and also with my daughter when she entered puberty crisis. And so that led another kind of branch of our journey. And, um, and so I went cannabis patient, cannabis grower, cannabis nurse consultant, working with thousands of patients, yeah. you know, being a mom using cannabis for my daughter through, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about this piece, but just doing an objective risk versus benefit. Right. Her cannabis was very clearly, you know, our number one choice. What it has done for her is enormous. And now I'm retired as a nurse and I'm a college professor teaching medical professionals about cannabinoid science and, and really what we know about how this plant works in our body. And just, it really debunks a lot of the stigma that's out there. So I, I'm a big speaker and do a lot of presenting and things like that on the topic. That's wonderful. I know that it's still somewhat of a controversial topic considering that we do have a lot of states legalizing cannabis. We had, you know, the president recently striking down a lot of prosecutions federally. We are still waiting on Congress to pass, you know, federal legislation, but it is something that, you know, we do see across the board as something that, you know, we have the younger generations kind of thinking it's no big deal. There's science behind it that, you know, kind of that risk benefit that we found so many uses for. I think the old school notion was that, you know, like the medical use was like if you were in cancer treatments, right? And a lot of people used it for the nausea. And that's what most people think of as the medical use. But mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about the science and, and the medical use in other ways? Of course. And there are, you know, cannabis literally is good for almost everything. And this is part of what really throws medical professionals, because mm -hmm. you something is good for everything and you automatically want to write it off as snake oil. Right, like, right. An oath to be discriminating about what we teach our patients, right? But realistically, you know, the science began to emerge in the early 90s. And what it supports is that we have a system in our body called the endocannabinoid system. We actually produce our own cannabinoids internally. The endocannabinoid system is kind of like the hormone or endocrine system, meaning it produces these substances, these cannabinoids that interact with receptors throughout the body. Okay. And the job of this endocannabinoid system is to promote homeostasis, which is our medical term for optimal health balance. Mm -hmm. So basically, when you consider that every illness or symptom is derived of underlying imbalances... That right there explains why cannabis supplementation can be high impact for so many different diseases. And in my own case, it was, um, I was diagnosed with autoimmune lupus, very, very painful. Yeah. Sought cannabis just as an alternative to opioids because right, I, right. Knew, so I, I've seen what happens to patients that go down that path. And it's well, I not, bet. I bet. Yeah. And so I was very motivated and friend of mine was a grower. So my husband went and got some stuff, made me some medicine. Not only did it manage my pain. It lifted my brain fog, which of course wow. of the stigma in the next year or so to completely reverse my autoimmune markers for lupus. Oh, wow. What got my attention as a nurse. I'm like, right. wow, how can this plant do something that no mainstream pharmaceutical can boast? How right. is that possible? Right. Yeah. Right. Dove into the research. And so a couple of years later, when my daughter entered puberty crisis with autism, which of course is common to about half of our kiddos, unfortunately hers exhibited as extreme level behaviors. Okay. So she was self-injurious. She was punching herself in the head, screaming, oh, melting down. Mm -hmm. She was aggressing and beating up all of her caregivers and parents. And she destroyed my house. I had holes in every wall, holes for doors, broken light fixtures. I mean, big, big safety issues. And at the time, you know, we started her on the non-intoxicating compounds of cannabis just to be really conservative 
And uh, the pain relieving formula specifically really alleviated her symptoms and actually spared her out of home placement for safety reasons. So that was something that was looming and we just scarcely missed. And for three months in 2015, she was actually living part-time with a caregiver and part-time at home just to allow some reprieve because of how intense the situation was. So those are really my passion makers. That's what started me off. You know, in working with thousands of patients, I've seen hospice patients dying of cancer and hospice means they've only got an estimated six months or less to live. Right. 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 Spiraling towards death. I've seen them graduate hospice cancer resolves. There are no evidence of disease. This patient I'm thinking of went on to live another 10 years wow. Wow. Died on cancer related issue. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you see these things as a nurse in the O's we've taken and the ethics that are driven into us, you start to really objectively weigh the risk versus benefit of the mainstream and pharmaceutical approaches, which with autism have horrible side effects, extrapyramidal symptoms, Steven Johnson syndrome, neuroleptic, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and a couple of them are even life-threatening, not to mention quality of life-threatening versus the cannabis, which has side effects like euphoria and promoting balance, like really beneficial side effects and unsurpassed safety profile to boot especially the non-intoxicating forms with kids. So that's, you know, that was kind of the process I went through to come to the conclusion that we needed to use cannabis for my kid. And, um, you know, now she's speaking and she's able to communicate a lot of her needs. She's uh, very conversational and she's doing very well. So I credit cannabis and some other biomed, you know, in a lot of therapies, ABA, OT, speed. Of course, yeah. Nothing is isolated, you know, on its own. You are... I think it is snake oil if you're just saying, just use this, right? And that's not, you know, from your experience in the research. That's what I appreciate is the delving into the like, hey, this is curious. Let me dive into what's going on. And, you know, just to take a step back, obviously, Amanda had referenced that under the federal law, even though we're in California and California has legalized it and as many other states under the federal, it's still in a category of being an illegal drug. So what that means is no research is done, right? No federally funded research is done. So, you know, that has been major because how do you, I mean, obviously people can do their own, you know, Jana, you had referenced research that you you have looked into, but it makes it very difficult because a lot of big money can come from the federal government to research right. things, right? We're seeing the federal, you know, money go towards the COVID vaccines, right? Um, and we were able to produce a vaccine within a year, you know, and all this stuff. So th- there's a lot of weight and power and money there, right? So when you were doing the research, what you had said, like the early 90s, that's when, you know, a lot of people started talking about the benefits to to the cancer and things like that. Are you looking at kind of privately private labs doing research? Are you have you been part of any of that research? Obviously, you have your firsthand knowledge. We have clients, you have patients um, that you've helped. But can you kind of like if a parent wanted to do a little bit more research, can you kind of talk about where you started and how? And so I'm a nurse. So I started with the medical journals. Mm. As you said, it's enormously difficult to get any kind of federal funding to do research in the United States because cannabis is still a schedule one substance, meaning Mm -hmm. it it governed under the Controlled Substances Act Mm -hmm. in the 1970s that, you know, our very ethical ex-president Nixon put into place. Right. And incidentally, you know, in 1988, we had a federal judge 
Francis was his name, who determined, he agreed with us that objectively cannabis met zero of the three criteria for schedule one placement and should be descheduled. Mm -hmm. We are like 34 years later, still fighting this fight. So there's a lot of political and, you know, profit elements preventing its logical placement off of the schedule and allowing it to be more accessible. But in the interim, you know, we're basically relying a lot on international research and, you know, our federal government actually researched cannabis in 1972 specific to cancer, found that THC causes apoptosis or programmed cell death of cancer cells in 1972. That was right before it was placed schedule one. So it's like we have 35,000 studies now that are all reputable. They're all in medical journals. They're all valid research, you know, free of any conflicts or any, you know, I don't know. A lot of times research can be skewed by who's paying for the research and what their yep. desired outcome right. is. Yep. Right. So just making sure it's reputable and the international research is profound. I mean, it, it really supports that cannabis can be utilized to benefit and promote balance in every other system of the body and all of the diseases that stem from those other systems in the body, whether it's the right. brain, the immune system, the gut, the skeletal system, the muscular system, I mean, just everything, it interacts with everything else. We see that in education as well. Typically we have research that takes a very long time to be implemented in practice. Mm -hmm. So even though the research has been around, you know, even with the age of technology and even with how fast we can get information, you know, at our fingertips, we still don't have the widespread knowledge of this research, which then leads, I mean, it's a very much a political thing. People vote for their politicians, for their elected officials, who are the ones who make these decisions. And if the political, the elected officials don't have the research or, you know, they don't have the mindset that they want to go that route and we are electing them because we don't have this information, you know, we, we get in this circle of problems. So, you know, I know that that's a big problem with a lot of things. And, you know, we could talk all day about the medical field and how, you know, there's not enough done about so many things that we could be researching. And, you know, that's a topic for another day. But I wanted to broach the subject a little bit about coming back to the autism. And, you know, it's always difficult to get studies on children. That's why the kids vaccine for COVID took so long, right? Because it's very hard to do research and studies on children. Is there any research? So, you know, you talked about your daughter being, you know, 20. Is there any research about younger kiddos with the use of cannabis? There is, there's quite a bit. And I will send you the link. I did write a pretty extensive cited article on the topic called Cannabis for Autism Harm Reduction. And it has a lot of the research that I found that actually supports cannabis for autism. And so there's that. And Bonnie Goldstein, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, who's incidentally one of the board members for my nonprofit autism safe haven, she did a study last year and found that there's a deficiency. We had this theory that there's a deficiency in autism called endocannabinoid deficiency, meaning mm. these kids can't produce enough cannabinoids in their bodies. And when we supplement it with the cannabis plant, it can seamlessly fill in for that deficiency. And she did a mm. study that really proved that theory last year. So that was pretty cool. And then we have a lot of outcomes data. I mean, I'm to the point after working with thousands of patients and seeing even more profound outcomes than my daughter and I experienced that patient outcomes are evidence. And the research actually tends to be behind those patient outcomes because we'll see something happen and say, wow, 
how did that happen? Let's research. Yeah. It's exactly right. my experience, you know, with the lupus. Right. right. You know, it's this outcomes data that we have. There was a retrospective study that it was done through parent interviews, so very subjective. Mm-hmm. But the parents actually reported with cannabis, with their child with autism, they're 80% of them reported moderate to significant improvement in quality of life for these kids. So not only is it great for symptom management, things like meltdowns or aggression or self-injury or anxiety or depression, or even focus for ADD, ADHD, or some of the higher functioning kids, but it's also filling a known deficiency that is linked with autism called endocannabinoid Mm -hmm. deficiency. So it's really working on multiple levels is my belief about cannabis for autism. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of parents, you know, I've had this with a lot of my clients. I had one child that by the time he was 12 was on 70 different types of medications. Right. And so this isn't to say, oh, you know, you haven't tried anything or anything. You know, you even said hand in hand with ABA and all this other stuff. This was just one piece of the puzzle. Right. And I think that that's what people, you know, get your critical thinking skills on and, and get curious and, you know, ask those questions when it's concerning something new. So this is just, you know, one tool. This isn't, you know, something that we're saying like, oh, you know, and that stigma is there, right? It's like, oh, well, you're going to get your kid. And it's like, no, you're not listening to what we are saying. You are making a predetermination. And for these families, they didn't just come to this conclusion like, okay, well, we're just going to try this. Like, a lot of the families that I work with, I mean, they've tried so many different types of medications. And just like ADHD medication, if you are not a person with ADHD, it can have some you know, weird side effects, right? But if you are a person with ADHD and you take medication, you feel that you can think straight, you know, your mind's not going in a hundred different ways. And, you know, people don't bat an eye to those patient, you know, testimonials, but then for this, they will. Right. So I I think you have so much to overcome. And and that's why the client that had referred you is a nurse herself. And I, I believe that you had done one of those medical trainings, right. For the medical professionals. And you continue to do that. Do you have, I know you also You'll send us the article so that we can have it in the show notes. Are there any places that people can go to learn more about what you do, where you speak, how you speak, or if they can have you come to their work? Where can people reach you? Yeah, probably the best place to reach me is janachampagne.com. I'm involved in multiple projects and have several other websites, but that one kind of has everything in one place for people. So it kind of tells our journey and it has links to my articles and all of the roles that I'm filling currently. And part of the reason I'm focused now on educating medical professionals is that's part of the reason that parents and patients don't know about cannabis. The medical professionals are not being taught in nursing school or medical school. Mm -hmm. Right. That's really primary. And it really explains how, you know, the stigma is ongoing because the medical professionals don't understand the science. You know, they're scared of the schedule and placement, things like that. Right, right. But, you know, realistically, what I saw in the majority of the patients that I consulted with over the years was a reduction in pharmaceuticals, an improvement in quality of life, and an improvement in function with a really well-informed approach of medical cannabis therapy. And oftentimes when you, just like I did with my daughter, when you weigh the risk versus benefit yep. of the pharmaceuticals for autism, which are Risperdone and Abilifier, the FDA approved ones, bunch of off labels, like extra pyramidal symptoms, less enlargement in boys, <laughs> plus some, you know, really wow. life-threatening uh, suicidal ideation is another one I hadn't mentioned before. 
So often cannabis, unfortunately, it's missed by these parents as the first logical choice for their child. And they do go through this process where they try everything else. And usually by the time they turn to the cannabis, they're just desperate or they're in a crisis type situation. So I'm really trying to get the word out there to help people find it earlier in the game. So. Absolutely. So if a family was, you know, considering maybe they've looked everything up that you've provided and they're thinking, this is something that I want to try with my child. We know that a lot of doctors are not prescribing. What do you think, what would you recommend as like the first step? Obviously talk to your doctor and see kind of where they're at, but is there a good place to kind of find the medical community that's willing to, you know, prescribe cannabis for children? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, luckily, you know, it used to be that access depended on where someone was located and what was their zip code, right? Nowadays, CBD is covered under the Federal Hemp Act of 2018 and is accessible to everybody. So that's a great place for parents to start. It's not intoxicating. It's not going to impair your child's function. It doesn't have some of the risks associated with THC use in childhood and adolescence that we hear about. And so that's a good place to start. And what I've done is help create free resources that any consumer can call, speak with a nurse for 15 minutes and get some questions answered and get some guidance. Now, depending on where you live, depending on your situation as a parent, you may still want to get a certification from a physician to even start your child on CBD. Those are the types of questions that a nurse can help answer. Um, And the free nurse line is at CannabisNurseApproved.com, which I will send you the link for. Our nurses that I've trained, I don't answer that line myself, but I can vouch that every nurse on there has been trained specific Mm -hmm. on pediatric use of cannabis. So that's so helpful. And for our listeners, we will have to do a separate podcast episode about the implications in school. Obviously, this is something that families may choose to have their child take at home, but we do know that school boards have policies on certain drugs. And if it is not considered in many jurisdictions, schools would still list cannabis as one of those, you know, not allowed substances on campus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is another implication in terms of talking to your IEP team, informing the school. And and we'll do another kind of brief mini episode kind of about that, but just keep in mind that that is something that we think about as well. Absolutely. It's so vital and we are making progress. I'm also a legislative advocate and you know, working in Oregon on Ryan's law, which would protect access to patients in medical settings to use their cannabis and OCHA, which is, it's this big act that's trying to fix our medical marijuana program that's severely broken at the moment. Mm-hmm. In Colorado, they've made some great progress and they have Quentin's law in Colorado that actually protects school age cannabis patients right to access the cannabis at school. And then they did an amendment to it in 2021 that actually allows the staff and the nurse to administer the cannabis during school hours, yeah. but they, they still kind of left it up to the staff, you know, they yeah. have to refuse. Right. and what the 2021 bill, and I don't remember the number at the moment, but what it did was require every school district in Colorado to create a policy for cannabis administration by their staff. But then mm-hmm. when it comes to shove, the staff can still opt out because it is a schedule one drug. Sure. Um, even though we've proven there is no risk of federal right loss. Right. Accommodating right. cannabis patients. And it's funny because I actually created a department of education approved course on cannabinoid science that I teach to integrative medicine students. So it's like, I don't think the DOE would withhold funding from a school for accommodating, but there's this perceived fear that that's a risk. And so well, that, yes. that, 
that, and that's the fear mongering, right? Is like having said that. And I think that you being at the forefront and really trying to bring it in Colorado, of course, right? And Colorado didn't go down the hole, did it? I think they made a lot of money after they legalized, you know, for the oh, state. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we continue to shed the light on that as well. And that's why we were just so happy to, to have you on. And you take the time to share your story, your personal story, your daughter's story in trying to shed light and push this forward. So we appreciate your time, Jana. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me today. This was a lot of fun. So I appreciate it. Listeners, we hope you found this super helpful and informative. And if you have any thoughts or you have any ideas for future episodes, go ahead and send us an email or find us on Instagram or Facebook and give us those ideas. And maybe you will hear your topic soon. (laughs) Everyone take care. Bye. Bye.